Kia ora, this is The Detail. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today, who owns New Zealand? A new investigation reveals that 3.3% of all the land is in foreign hands. Doesn't sound like a lot, but here's a more startling number. Six of those top ten landowners in New Zealand, and we're talking private landowners only, are foreign-owned forestry companies. So foreign-owned forestry companies are among our biggest landowners. And there are more stark numbers on how the land is spread amongst New Zealanders. Four and a half thousand people own half of the privately owned land. So that 56% of New Zealand that's privately owned, 0.1% of the population own half of that. RNZ investigative journalist Kate Newton data crunched more than two million property titles for several months to find out this. About 56% of the land that we could identify was privately owned. Within that 56%, there was 3.3% roughly that was owned by foreign or overseas entities or individuals. And then about 6.7% of the land is owned by Māori. And then we were able to identify at least 28% of land that was in some form of public ownership. So we're talking government agencies, we're talking the dock estate, uh, local councils. And that's the upside. About a third of the entire country is in public ownership, compared with, say, the UK, where only 8% is public land. But it is the country's third largest landowner that really stands out. One of the companies that we did get quite interested in, not because they've done anything wrong, and I should say from the outset that there's no wrongdoing by by any of these people. They just happen to own a lot of land. But one of the companies we were really interested in was uh, New Forests Asset Management. Uh, that's essentially a funds management company or a series of funds management companies that's, that's owned by a kind of parent company based in Australia. They have actually amassed, so they're third on the list. They're the third biggest private landowner in New Zealand. But four years ago, they didn't own anything here. They, they have gone from owning nothing in 2015, as far as we can tell, to now owning 77,500 hectares. They had an, uh, an overseas investment office approval just go through last month to buy, you know, another piece of land. So they've been accruing land at quite a rapid rate. And I, I did find that really astonishing that a company could just acquire that amount of land seemingly without question. And I mean, you know, they've done everything by the book. There, there were a few purchases that they made early on that they kind of didn't quite cross the T's, dot the I's with, um, and, and there was a fine that was issued to them and also the company that, that was selling. Um, so I think it was an $80,000 costs, and then they made a $20,000 donation, possibly the other way around, but it was essentially a $100,000 sort of costs that was given to them to account for the fact that they hadn't quite done it properly, but the sales went through, and subsequent sales that they've made since then have been by the book. I guess the thing is, if you've got the money and you want the land and you want it for forestry purposes in particular, that approval to buy it can go through pretty quickly. Yeah, so the the special forestry test, I think 32 days is the window that they go for in terms of approval from start to finish. And have any alarms been raised about that? Yeah, so farmers 
as part of this concern over conversions of farmland to forestry, have raised some concerns about that special forestry test. Why? Um, they they are concerned about the ease with which these sales seem to be happening, the huge money in some cases that's involved that can essentially outbid any local bid from another farmer who, say, wants to buy their own farm mm. or increase their own land holdings. Farmers just cannot um, compete against the bidding of the forestry. We're getting probably outbidded by nearly a, a twi- half to twice as much as what a farmer can afford to pay. Um, and even you've, you had a recent advert saying, hey, you buy this farm, you could be up to over $500,000 worth of um, government money to plant it. And is there evidence that that is actually happening? Yeah, so there was actually one farmer that I spoke to who he sold his farm up in Wairoa where a lot of these sales have been taking place and he had, I think, four offers. Only one, he said, was a genuine farming offer. It was significantly lower than all of the forestry offers. The forestry offer, the highest bid was 50% higher than the farming bid. Um, My understanding is that that was an overseas investor who was looking to purchase that land. This farmer was so adamant that he didn't want his land to go into forestry that he actually accepted the underbid. Wow. Yeah, and um, these these forestry bidders were apparently not particularly pleased with with how that went down. He he said, you know, he thinks that they're kind of used to money winning, and Uh it didn't in this case. And just looking at New Zealanders' overall ownership, it's actually very low. This is looking at home ownership, I guess, and it's difficult to tell from the database what, what the intent of individual landowners is for, for their land. So we used a very, very rough measure. And I should say this this will capture land that doesn't necessarily have a house on it, but this was the best proxy we could come up with, mm. which was to look at anybody who owned, I think in the end we went for 0.4 hectares because that's a quarter acre. And collectively, if you add all of those little hectares together, how much land do they own? And it's not very much. It's 0.5% of all of New Zealand is owned by these people who own little house-sized plots of land. Wow. Yeah. 0.5%. Mm-hmm. 5% of all the land was owned by that top 100, so we're talking about a tenth of that land being owned by all of the people who just own homes. It's yeah. quite confronting. Yeah. I think because we think of ourselves as a, a well, a nation of homeowners... And maybe that kind of mentally means that we think that collectively we do own most of the country. Mm. But actually that land ownership is is concentrated among a very few. And there there was another figure in there because we we cut the data a lot of ways to sort of work out, you know, who owned what percent and so on. I worked out that 0.1% of the population, so about 4,500 people, own half of the privately owned land. So that 56% of New Zealand that's privately owned, 0.1% of the population own half of that. And the rest of us own the other half. So that means that there's a really tiny percentage of very wealthy New Zealanders who own the majority of the privately owned land. Yeah, well, you could also say wealthy in the sense uh, that that they're land rich because I think a lot of the people, particularly high country station owners, for example, who've had this land in their family for a long time, might actually not be particularly cash rich. Mm. 
so that the land that is is their asset in that sense. And Maori ownership. Mm. People might be surprised at how small their land ownership is. Yeah, well, I think it's easy to read stories about some of the recent really large treaty settlements and think that huge chunks of land are being returned to Māori. And this just shows, you know, in black and white in numbers that really that is not the case. What what figure are we talking about? We're talking 6.7%. If you start to think about it and and think about the fact that 56% of land in New Zealand is in some form of private ownership, that puts it outside that treaty process. And we've seen that with the debate around Ihumatau. In essence, the, the treaty process can't touch that land because it's, mm. it's already privately owned. And there's debate that is sort of starting to stir around whether or not that is actually an appropriate way of dealing with some of these, these treaty claims and some of these, these claims that extend way, way, way back into history. So once you start to think about that, it starts to make more sense that Māori still own this very insignificant proportion of land and that not very much has been returned. Yeah. You spoke to Max Rashbrook at Victoria University about this. That's a stark reminder of the effects of colonisation. Um, that given that Māori used to own uh, 100% of the land in New Zealand and now own, what was it, 6.7%. So Max is an inequality researcher and journalist and he's done a lot of work looking at, say, wealth in terms of shareholdings and income levels. And he was saying that for him, this data just really underscores some of the other things that he's found. It's also a reminder of the enormous wealth inequality in New Zealand. If you look at wealth more broadly, the wealthiest 1% of adults, so that's about 38,000 people, own a fifth of all the wealth, whereas conversely, the poorest half of New Zealand adults, 1.9 million or something like that, own just, you know, 3% of all the wealth. So there's this enormous inequality of wealth in general, and in a sense what these figures do, just do, is reinforce that. Why did you think this was important? Well, I think that in New Zealand, there are real attachments to land. There's the whole question of of land ownership or land guardianship um, as it relates to uh, Treaty of Waitangi, Māori ownership, what happened before settlers arrived, all, all those kind of questions around that form of land ownership. And then you also get lots and lots and lots of stories or issues in New Zealand that are based around land. Um, you've got a huge farming community still. You've got New Zealanders, you know, archetypal love of the outdoors and, and our attachment to being able to go to all of these wild places and have public access and so on. The impact of foreign ownership became a focus last year when the American TV personality Matt Lauer bought Hunter Valley Station and limited public access to Hawea Conservation Park. What we've effectively got is we have a large landlocked area of conservation estate that the public can't get access to, and this was the only opportunity to provide for that access. This is the largest lakefront property in New Zealand. We can't afford for this to be shut off to the public. But Newton's data crunching shows it's not American TV stars who are involved in the big land grab, it's foreign forestry companies. So when we got what we thought was our final top 100 landowners, forestry is really dominant. Six of those top 10 landowners in New Zealand, and we're talking private landowners only, 
are foreign-owned forestry companies, and there's a seventh entity on that list that's a New Zealand-owned forestry company. So you're talking about seven out of ten of the, the, the top ten largest landowners in New Zealand are, are forestry. And then there's lots of large farms that kind of come further down the list. And so we thought, well, you know, what what is it about this that could be interesting? Is there something worth exploring here? We were hearing a lot about what was happening with a lot of the new plantings that were going on, some of the concerns from rural communities. The mayor of Wairoa, Craig Little, says big forestry operators are moving in and the result will be devastating to his community. I sat down and I sold this farm. My wife and I could spend the rest of our lives sitting in our garden, enjoying ourselves, making probably more money on the carbon credits. and then. But then, of course, there wouldn't be all the offspring, the people I employ to do fences, blackberry spraying, bigger drivers, sharers, uh, all the off-flow into town. So you, you'd sit there with your trees and, and, and enjoy your life, but, but you, your conscience or my conscience says I can't do that to our community. When we had a look at the Overseas Investment Office decisions that have been made recently, uh, government policy like the One Billion Trees program came up as not necessarily the, the only reason that some of these purchases were approved, but you know they were cited as, as a potential benefit to New Zealand of selling this land to, to foreign investors. And was that a way of fast-tracking a decision about letting a foreign company buy some land? Yeah, so not so much the One Billion Trees program, but about a year ago the government introduced something that's called the Special Forestry Test, which is essentially a streamlined process for anyone who's overseas wanting to buy land that is either forestry land already or they're intending to convert to forestry land. Um, and that that's driven by the government's emphasis on forestry. Shane Jones has been very big on forestry as a way of developing regions and then there's all sorts of environmental reasons for wanting to plant lots and lots and lots of extra trees. There's all sorts of arguments about whether or not pines or natives are the best way to go about sequestering that carbon which we will we'll get into later in this week um, with some of our other reporting that's come out of this. Yeah, yeah. so this the streamlined test essentially removes the need for an investor to prove any additional benefit to New Zealand from the purchase of land, which is, is normally one of the things that's required when you're buying land, um, special land in New Zealand, is, is to show that your ownership of that land somehow creates a benefit to New Zealand that goes beyond whatever benefit New Zealand's getting from it now. We're taking an axe to the unnecessary red tape uh, because we want to uh, be stimulating further foreign direct investment uh, into forestry. Now, if a future government wants to come along and change that, or in a few years' time the current government wanted to change that, we can. So if you were a foreign forestry company and you want to buy some land in New Zealand, if you said that you want to plant the trees on it, you'd pretty much get the go-ahead? That's that's what we've heard. Okay. Is that, is essentially, you still have to pass the good character test, but then essentially if you're going to plant trees, then they are quite happy to approve that. So what you found out is that six out of the top ten landholders are overseas forestry companies. Is that... Do you think that's a bad thing? So you could make arguments either way. About 70% of New Zealand's forestry estates are owned in some way by foreign investors anyway, whether that's freehold land, so they own the land outright, or they own the cutting rights. So that's a, a basically a form of leasehold land where they, they don't own the, the land that the trees are actually growing in, but they own the trees themselves. So there's already huge foreign ownership of mm. forestry in New Zealand anyway. 
Um, the government in various kind of policy documents has said that in order to plant more trees, there's going to need to be more foreign investment. Essentially, it's, it's already so dominated by foreign investment anyway that we are not going to be able to achieve the sort of extra planting we want mm. without external help. So you could argue that if if you accept that there are really good reasons for planting lots of extra trees, that that foreign investment is a good thing. Mm. There are also arguments that various people have made, labour unions in particular, about why foreign investment is not necessarily a great thing in forestry. Obviously there are laws that people have to oblige by, but people have argued that perhaps there's less of a duty of care if you're a foreign investor. We saw what happened in Tolaga Bay last year. In June last year, unprecedented heavy rain in the Tolaga catchment washed tonnes of forestry debris from the hills onto the flats. The slash, as it's called, created dams, exacerbating the flooding that followed. Prosecutions, I think, are still taking place at the moment. Um, one company has, has pled guilty and will be sentenced uh, this month. The others are still sort of going through the court process. But all that slash and sediment that came down into Tolaga Bay was caused by foreign-owned forestry plantations. The Overseas Investment Office took nine years to realise that the Malaysian owner of a Tolaga Bay forestry company had been illegally logging overseas. It's one of three companies blamed for the huge amounts of slash washing down rivers and into the township. Another Tolaga Bay forestry company owned by a Malaysian billionaire has been granted 24 consents to buy sensitive land despite one of his other companies facing accusations of environmental and human rights abuses abroad. Now these revelations have renewed calls for changes to the way that the good character test is applied to foreign investors. Damon Salmond, who's an environmentalist historian, she owns land up in Gisborne and she told me that she really feels that when you're not there to see what's happening to the land, there's perhaps less of a sense of duty or responsibility, I guess, in terms of what happens to those communities that are around you. You know, so, there's, so there's you... the potential, she says, to essentially pull the plug and walk away if they wanted to. So how did Newton actually pull all this information together? Land Information New Zealand has a whole series of databases uh, on their data website that you, any, anyone can go and look at. And lots of it is just completely public. We basically focused on titles, so who owned the land and where there wasn't a title attached to a land, looked at some of those other categories. Where did you actually start? I mean, did you say, right, we're going to start at the top at Cape Rianga and go down? No, it was it was much more, let's get all of the data, aggregate it, kind of shake it around and see what falls out. I use a particular coding program. It's called R. Uh, a lot of other journalists who are involved in some kind of data journalism around the world use this particular coding language. So we basically took 2.3 million property titles and we aggregated them. So I essentially used this, uh, this program, this coding program, to group together all of the parcels of land that had the same property title. So say Sharon Brett Kelly mm. owns one parcel of land here in Northland and another parcel of land um, in Otago or another parcel of land in Wellington. And by aggregating by those owners' names, we kind of came up with an initial list. And it's really important to note that that's an initial list because we had to do a heap of cross-checking and 
making sure that we weren't getting, you know, you, Sharon Brett Kelly, confused with another Sharon Brett Kelly who might live somewhere else in the country and aggregating all of your land holdings together. Mm. So there was a lot of research that went into it, and we focused on the the top 100 um, because we had to stop somewhere. Top 100 landowners. Top 100 landowners. Well, actually top 200 because we knew that some would drop out. Took that top 200 looked at it, thought, okay, well, this person up here owns a hell of a lot of land, but also there's this company here. Who owns that company? Look at the holdings for that company and realise that actually that there's, uh, you know, somebody on the list also owns that company. So then, you know, you kind of rename, you re-aggregate, you put those together, then you might find somebody who owns a whole lot of land via one company and you think, hmm, I wonder if they have other companies that they have 100% shareholding in uh, that also own land that maybe haven't made it into the top 200, but we want to include them. So lots and lots of searches that we did on the company's office, all that sort of thing, to, to make sure that it was as comprehensive as possible. Now, this is only the beginning of a series of of stories about land ownership, and you've been doing a lot of driving around talking to farmers. What are they telling you? There's a real sense of concern. There's been some research that was done by a farm consultancy company uh, called Baker Ag. They're based in Masterton, but they looked at white oil, and they found that forestry, whether it was carbon forestry or traditional forestries, had a much, much greater return to the owner than any form of sheep or beef farming, unless you had like an incredibly high-performing sheep and beef farm. But they found that farming created more local jobs. So forestry still creates jobs. You have people who plant the trees, you have people harvesting the trees, tending the trees in between that time. But that most of the direct spend and most of the jobs happened at the start of a 30-year harvest period and at the end, and there was kind of nothing in between. So while the jobs might be lower but still comparable and same with the the sort of direct spending within the local community it was all concentrated at either end of the harvest cycle and these communities are very worried about what happens in between whether these these communities and settlements just kind of die in the meantime That's Kate Newton, and that's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day, and if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Mark Jennings. Kakite anō. Ka